Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. This is probably conceptually the hardest one to understand in the whole course. Okay? So I want you to be sure to ask, ask questions and stuff. Because this conceptually this stuff is hard, okay? Because you're gonna have to think backwards in this one. Um, you'll see what I mean in a second. So we care a lot about type one error. Um, indeed, it's the case that we set alpha, don't we? Okay? Starts out you say the first thing you do is you figure out what your level of significance is going to be. Almost always 0.05, but you set it. We set it. That's what the experimenter does. In certain cases, we might make it 0.01. In certain cases, we might make it 0.15 or something. But we set it. Um, our software, in fact, and you'll see this when you play with SPSS, gives us exact p-values, and a p-value is just the probability of the type 1 error. So SPSS or SAS, or which would be SAS, uh, or Excel, for that matter, gives you an exact value for p. It'll say 0.032719 or something. So it actually gives you that. And you, I think you saw when I was showing you the stuff I did with my old uh, calculator, it actually did that. It gives us exact p values. So clearly we care a lot about this. Um, why is type 1 error more important than type 2 error? Interesting question. Well, I guess in one respect, it kind of is, because type 1 error is you're saying something's there, but it's not. It's a false positive. Now, so for a sort of scientifically, not, not for practical purposes, but scientifically, you're making a claim that it actually is supported by evidence. Type 2 error, someone else will find the error. Someone else will find the effect. You don't get credit for it, but at least someone else will find it. It's different if it's things like something for public health than a type 1 error. Sorry, a type 2 error is pretty dangerous. Right? Okay. So that's maybe a reason. I'm not sure that's the reason, but that's a possible reason. Um... Well, part of it is that Fisher, the guy who developed uh, analysis of variance, that's why it's called the F-test, um, he said he actually thought of the null hypothesis as a real thing, that nothing happened. Now, the chance of nothing actually happening at all is very small, right? Think about it practically. Is it ever the case that no variables ever affect anything? The variables don't affect something at all? It's pretty slim, right? That doesn't happen very often. But, so I mean, like, you know, you, you measure enough of anything, you will find an effect. The question is practical significance is what we care about. But Fisher, on the other hand, so we, we sort of set up the null hypothesis nowadays as a strong man. It's something we're going to break down, don't we? We set it up on purpose that way. Fisher really believed there were cases, from his writing, you can see this, that there were, that the null hypothesis was real, which probably isn't fair or correct, um, but because of that, I think it led us to believe that there really were cases where nothing actually happened. Um, and of course, all our methods are set up that way, which is kind of circular. There's a reason for, for carrying more of a type 1 error. But uh, it is the case that our methods are set up such that we, we, we set type 1. And it's easy to set up a situation where nothing happened, or it's easy to imagine a situation where nothing happened, and all hypothesis. The, the strong man that we actually try to knock down. So it's easy to imagine it. I'm not saying it, it's true. I think, in fact, it's, it's in fact exceedingly unlikely that nothing happens. Right? But it, it's easy to understand, to imagine it. <clears throat> okay? 
Question so far. So see, so far it doesn't seem conceptually hard, does it? Just, just wait. Um, and finally, for HO, we, it's easy for us to imagine a situation of two distributions that don't differ. Right? They're the same distribution. That's easy to imagine. For HA to be true, we have to know how, not, not just that HO isn't true, but how big is the difference between the two distributions we compare? Oh, now you see why it's hard, right? Because you have to say, oh, it's going to be this different. Oh, why would it be that different? What? Why should they differ? the means differ by 6 as compared to by 4? And in fact, the probability of making a type 2 error is going to change if the difference is 6 rather than 4, for example. Right? Just now it's hard. This is why this is hard to do. So part of the reason I think that we care more about it is that it's easy to do type 1 error. We just set it. We can't just set type 2 error. We have to guess what it will be. Now we're going to make a very educated guess. We're going to have proper math behind why we do this and how it works. But it is, alas, a guess. Okay. See, you see that though why for HA? We have to actually say how different they are, not just that they're not different easy. They are different, and then the next question is by how much? Uh, I don't know. That's hard, right? Make sense? Okay, good. I, saw, I actually saw a couple of nods there. That's nice. Okay. So in the best of all possible worlds, we would minimize alpha and beta as the most we could. We don't want to make errors. So let's, let's minimize those. That's good. Okay. Sure. Fair enough. I hate this room. Uh, I spend all Tuesday and Thursday, and I hate it in here. It's all so cramped. It wasn't so bad when they had the other desks, but now it's... You just wait. They're going to be shoving like 65 people in here. Somebody's going to have to teach intro psych in here at some point. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be awful. So we want to minimize those, and that, of course, is going to give us the most power, because power is 1 minus beta, right? And power is the probability of rejecting HO given, that's what that means, that's just notation, given HA is true. So power is the probability of rejecting HO given that HA is true. Think about that sort of two-by-two two matrix, right, of reality and statistical decisions. So it's HO is, <coughs> sorry, HA is true and we reject HO. Bottom right quadrant, that's power. <coughs> okay? That's what we want to do. That's what we want to increase, make that big. Because if there's something there, we want to find it. And it's going to be easier to find if that probability is higher. Okay, questions so far? Yes, Jerry, go ahead. So power is P, that's probability. Yes, correct. Yeah, it's just the probability of rejecting HO given HA is true. It's just that's just a conditional probability. All it is. Other questions? Does Good. Does power have its own like, symbol? No. Oh. One minus beta. Yeah. One minus beta. Because beta is the probability of making a type 2 error. You make a type 2 error when you fail to reject HO when HA is true. So the inverse of that is 1 minus beta. Yeah. Okay. So. 
Let's look at this picture. This is actually scanned from the book. And this is where it starts, starts to get a little bit hard because you have to imagine things. Imagine. So, let's pretend this is the HO distribution. Okay? And you remember from 2126, there's a critical region. There is a, let's say this is a 5% region, that's alpha. Okay? So ignore this distribution for now. Okay? Just the one on the left, the HO distribution. If we get a value greater than this, we say it's unlikely that this is true. So if we say that we get a value of z, let's say, or t, let's go z, nice and easy, that is greater than, and I guess here it would be 1.645, because that's the 0.05 level. We reject, we reject, we reject HO, we reject <laughs> HO, and we, so we reject HO. We never really accept HA, we reject HO, okay? What we're saying is, if this happened, it's unlikely this thing is actually the way the world works, because it's so unlikely to happen. Right? That's hypothesis testing. Straightforward. You okay, Cassidy? You look up here. You okay? You got it? I'm just saying, because I can see your face. It's beyond that. It's <laughs> about as far as I go. I've got a smile there. That's like, yeah, that make you drink coffee. Okay, maybe I can see a little further than I thought. Um, well, well, yeah, but I can't know that. <laughs> but don't blind people have their other senses sort of make up. Don't worry, I, it's okay. Um, okay, but you're okay with this, right? That makes sense. Fine. Now, so again, any questions on that? You've seen that before, but I want to make sure you understand that part. You're good. Okay, let's now. But actually, that's true. Actually, this is true. Okay. Actually, the H1 distribution is true. Now, if that's the case, we're going to make a rejection of the no anytime we get a value greater than that. All this part here, from the, just to the right of alpha, within the H1 distribution, is the probability of making the correct rejection. <coughs> and I know it's hard to visualize because you have you have to imagine you already know this. And it's one of these things where we never actually know these things. We can't, if we knew them, we wouldn't do the experiments. Oh, we already know that. Do you see why this is the probability of making a correct rejection? Because we make the decision based on the HO distribution, but the H1 distribution is true, or the HA distribution is true. Okay? Go ahead, guys. So we reject the null if the HA is greater than that little spot? That it, no, just if the value we obtain when we do the statistic is greater than there or to the right. Yeah. The probability of that is within here, and it's a great big amount. In fact, you see it's greater than half of it. That's probably about 0.6. 
it's a pretty big amount of this distribution. Right? Now again, I want to make, do you understand this? Do you have any other questions on this? You're, you go ahead, Spencer. So um, for the alpha, like in the, in the, little, the little spot, mm -hmm. so that's, um, that's like the value that we get, but for the H1, like it's actually, this is... Okay, we make our, we make our statistical, <laughs> no, it's okay. We make our, what's called a decision rule in statistics. A decision rule is we say, if Z is greater than... In this case, we're going to say if Z is greater than 1.645, which is actually the 0.05 level, one-tailed, okay? If Z is greater than that, we re will reject the null. And in fact, we're basing that decision on HL being true. Because we always, we always started assuming that all hypothesis. That's what we do. But, now, this is the part where it gets weird. Unbeknown, well, we, we can never know this. We can't. It's... We, this is, no, you can't, but we have to pretend. We will take a flight of fancy for the second time this week. I'm using that expression. Which I've never used in my life, and that's two times in one week. All in this room. Um, let's pretend we know this. Okay. And let's pretend this is true. H1. So... The value we pick to reject is based on this distribution, but reality, the world actually works like this on the right. So the probability is this great big chunk of the H1 distribution. Yeah. Okay? Does that answer your question too, Tom? Or are you okay? Or uh, pretty much. So if you just move like the H1 distribution like to the right, then you'll have a better chance mm -hmm. correctly. Yes, if we were we're already magic because we know this, <laughs> yeah. why don't we put this over here? Right, so you're, you're, yeah, this is good. It's good because you're, now you're really thinking because you're getting a little bit ahead of where I'm going, and like that's like a slide and a half from now. Perfect. Good. Other questions? I want you to understand just why that is the power. Why can't we know it? Why can't we know it? Yeah. Because it's we never really know. Well, we could know some things. There are things we know. These are keys, <laughs> right? No, we know that. Well, that's not a probabilistic statement. Um. Is let's see. Are psychology students the world over? The world over. Are people enrolled in psychology classes? Do they have a higher IQ than people enrolled in let's pick something else? Sociology? Somebody said okay. Then sociology. I don't know if that's true, but that's just we could we know that? Well, we could know it, but we'd have to measure everybody. We can't really know that. That's why you can't, these are probabilistic statements we're making. Not like things like, uh, I'm taller than you. We just look and go, no. That's not a probabilistic statement. Are all people named Dave taller than all people named Cassidy? I don't know the answer to that question. Cassidy's usually a woman's name, probably. But we still wouldn't know. So we can even say, we can use a directional hypothesis probably and say, like we have here. We can do that, that makes complete sense. However, we wouldn't know how far apart these are because we don't know all the days and all the castles. Right? Does it make sense? Yes. Okay. Other questions? So you get that. Now, now this is then, that, that's beta. This is the probability. This is type 2 error. It's actually kind of, look how big it is. Wow. That's the probability of, of making a false 
rejection. Sorry, if, uh, failing to reject. So that's that's that's. So your null hypothesis is true, or alternative hypothesis is true, but we're failing to reject. Could happen. Like, let's pretty damn likely there. A little more. This is way more than I'd be comfortable with if, if, if I was doing an experiment like this. Okay. Let's move that over. How would we increase the power? So it's not the slide. One more slide. It's one more point. Well, we could make alpha bigger. Just move that over. Would you be happy with that? Well, no. Oh, I'm going to have a whole bunch of false positives, but we'll have a lot of power. We can't do that. You could. You could. If something there is, you're going to find it, but you're also going to, a lot of times, say something's there when nothing's there. It's not good. Well, one could do it. And there are cases, as I said the other day, for example, public health issues, things like that, where we do that. Right? We've done it with secondhand smoke, which is fine. We do it with, um, with, with, with contamination in water, which is fine. These are, people, these are matters of life and death. That's okay. None of you guys, in your honors thesis, will cure cancer. Maybe some of you will go on and cure cancer. Great. If you do and get the Nobel Prize, mention my name at the speech. That's all I ask. All, all I've ever asked. We can increase the difference, what Tom was mentioning, between mu1 and mu0. Is that something we can practically do? Well, no. We can't. If you do that, people line up on Sundays and worship you. You, you, you can't just move distributions in the population around, right? Can't do that. So that's not something we can do. That's, that's impossible. It would work. So theoretically, one could do it if one were magic. Ah, what if we suck these things in and made them tighter? So we'll keep the differences the same, but we... Less overlap, basically. So we decrease the variances. That might be doable. Can we decrease the variance of an actual characteristic in the population? No, we cannot. We can't do that either. But we can make the variance tighter because we're not dealing with, when we make statistical decisions, we are not dealing with the distribution of the variable. We're dealing with the sampling distribution of the mean. And we know that the sampling distribution of the mean, the variance of the sampling distribution of the mean, we know that's the essential limit theorem, sigma squared divided by n. We've got to just make n bigger. Right? So there's going to be less overlap. Sigma squared sub x bar, that's the variance of the sampling distribution of the mean, is a function of n. Right? It's a function of n. As we know, sigma squared sub x bar equals sigma squared over n. And we make decisions based on this, all on, on, the, on the sampling distribution of the mean, not on the distribution of the actual variable. So the beautiful thing about this is we actually can do something about a quantity we don't know, which is very cool. We can do something about how much overlap there is between two distributions that we don't really know anything about. That's neat, I think. 
I find that kind of cool. And the way we do it is we increase n. Because as n, this is a constant, right? It's a parameter. Parameters, it's going to remain the same. So as this thing increases, this thing decreases. We're going to have less overlap. As n increases, the variance of the sampling distribution of the mean, so super squared set x bar, decreases. In other words, the overlap between those two theoretical distributions will decrease. Does that make sense? Tom looks like it almost makes sense. He's kind of raising, I'm not sure if he wants to raise his hand or not. Do they only decrease if the distributions are different? Well, there wouldn't be, there would be complete overlap if the distributions yeah. are the same. Yeah. yeah. But remember, we don't know. So we're going to yeah. just pretend, imagine that they're overlapping. Jen? Um, the sigma squared sub x bar, is that going to be the transformation of variance of similarity? Not really. No? no, this is a central limit theorem. The central limit theorem just says that the sampling distribution of the mean has a mean of uh, mu and a variance of sigma squared over n, or the standard deviation of sigma squared, or sorry, sigma over square root of n. Right? So that's all that is. And we make those, and remember, we're making statistical decisions not based on the distributions of the population uh, of the actual characteristic. We're doing it based on the sampling distributions of the mean. Right? And the beautiful thing is we actually can change that. We can't change sigma squared. That's, again, people multiply up and worship you on Sundays or Fridays or Saturdays. I don't know. Thursdays, I don't know. It's always going to go get on here on Thursday. Tuesday nights, alternate, whatever. We can't do that. We can do that. And it's totally in our control. More subjects. Right? Uh, no, I don't call them subjects. Screw it. My class. <laughs> and in stats, we almost always have subjects anyway. It's a do this statistical or experimental units. I like that one better. We should have gone the other way. You see that a lot, actually, in statistical literature. And I know a lot of you guys follow mostly the top statistical journals. Those are fun reads. Journal of the American Statistical Association. Oh, yeah. And by fun, I mean they're not fun. I like stats. I just don't think of it as a, and I think it's intrinsically cool and interesting. But I, for me, it's, it's a tool. You know, that's that's all it is. So you see that though. The nice thing is, what we're going to do is we're going to change the overlap by changing the number of subjects by increasing it. We're going to increase the overlap by, or sorry, decrease the overlap by increasing the number of subjects. Some, someone, I think a light bulb went off over somebody over there. Was, a woman. was that who, who was it? Was, it? was it you? Okay, it says, that was a woman's voice, definitely. Okay, that's cool. And we can actually do it. We can't move mu one and mu zero, and we, we could change alpha, but we usually can't. We could do that, but the problem is it it increases the probability of a type one error. We don't want that either. We don't want that either. Okay. So what we're going to look at now is we're going to look at the size of the difference between this thing that we don't know and this thing that we don't really know between mu1 and mu0. So basically, that's just a difference between two means. But we have to standardize this somehow so we can look at, uh, so we can take variance into account. Well, let's just divide by the variance. We're going to call 
the effect size D. By the way, this isn't the only way to look at effect size. This is probably the simplest way to look at effect size. We're going to take B1 minus B0, and we're going to divide by sigma. That's the standard deviation. Okay? We're just going to look at how many standard deviation units something is away from, that the two means are from each other. And you've, you know about doing things in standard deviation units. We tend to call those z-scores. Right? That's all this is. This is really just another standard kind of score. The, the nice thing is here, what I can do is I can now, with an effect size measure, I can compare two experiments. Because if I have differences between means in experiment one and it's, let's make it 100, whatever things we're measuring, but it's 100, the difference is 100. And the other one, it's 200. Okay? You might think, oh, that's twice as big a difference. And if, but what if, the, what if the standard deviations were 10 and 20? That means, in fact, those effect sizes were exactly the same. There's 100 divided by 10 and 200 divided by 20. Right? So it's just a way to standardize things. That's all we're going to do here. The way we almost always standardize things is by dividing by the, the standard deviation, or the variance if it's a squared quantity. Hmm. How are we going to know that? How are we going to know any of these damn quantities? Because what we want to do is do a power calculation before we do the experiment. We want to find out, actually, the, 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 the Sir Lancelot's blade, the Midas touch, the various other things from mythology that we want is to know how many subjects we need. We want to know how many people, how many rats, how many plants to measure. Because one extra is more time, more money, more resources. So what we want in the end, at the end of today, what I want you to be able to do, and I hope this is the, the point of this whole lecture today, is that you can make a guess of how many subjects you need. So when you do your thesis next year, or even if you're just thinking about an experiment ever, you can say, okay, this is out of the subjects I need. Okay? Every year this happens, and my honor students come to me, and they say that they want to use, say, 60 subjects. And I say, why? And they say, well, I don't know, 20 per group, and I got three groups. I say, why do you want 20? How about 11? Why 11? Eh, it should show up with 33 people. How'd you do that? I'm going to show you. One of the ways we can do this is prior research. You take a look at old experiments. You say to yourself, how big are the differences between the groups, and how big are the variances, or the standard deviations? It's funny. Uh, but I know I keep saying variance because later on in this course, all we're going to care about variance, so that's why I keep saying variance instead of standard deviation. Um, and in essence, this is what you do when you say, the first thing I ask my students is I say, how many subjects they usually use in these kind of experiments? When people find differences, right? And if they're finding something with, if they're finding a, a significance level of 0. 0.0001 with 60 people, we can probably do it with 15 and still find it, right? Why go over the top like that? Okay, so prior research is one possibility. So the question you're asking yourself is how big is big enough? How big a sample size are we going to need to find a difference, assuming the difference exists? 
One way, a nice way to do it, and this is outlined in the book, is something called Cohen's method. Um, in one of the most cited things ever, ten, literally tens and thousands of citations, Cohen came up with this idea of what he called a small, a medium, and a large effect. Now, it's arbitrary. A small effect has a D of 0.2, and that means the two distributions overlap by 85%. About 85%. A medium-sized effect, of, or a D of 0.5, overlaps with 67%, two-thirds. And a large difference, a D of 0.8, has an overlap of 53%. Okay. Is this completely arbitrary? Well, yeah. Calling them small, medium, and large, they're small, medium, and large relative to each other. Right? But just because it's a large size doesn't mean it's some huge, important difference. Just because it's small doesn't mean it's a non-important difference. They're just labeled that way because relative to each other, they're small, medium, and large. Right? It's like when you go to the theater and you get a, 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 a small pot and it's bigger than your head. This <laughs> is small. Well, related to the medium, which is bigger than most children, and the large, where they just you know, drive a, a, a truck up to your mouth and you take it into you the whole thing. That, that's small. That's medium. That's large. So remember that, that large doesn't mean huge, important effect. It means large compared to medium and small within this. Typically, when I'm doing these kind of calculations, but it's something that I'm not, you know, know a lot about, I start out using, I'll go, ah, let's go with medium. They two-thirds overlap. And a lot of things behaviorally are going to be like that. I think we can imagine that. Most sex differences, for example, in cognition, things like verbal differences between men and women and spatial differences between men and women, they're, 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 they're here, 85% overlap. Okay. So again, if you're looking for that, you're saying, I'm looking for a small effect. But typically, if you're not sure, I usually start here, medium. That's fine, two-thirds overlap, I like that. It has an intuitive feel to it, I don't know why. <coughs> okay. So now we've set D. Now what do we do? Well, we combine that, that information about D with the effect of sample size. And we're going to call this the delta statistic. So, yes. Um, you said you want the small? I might. Oh, okay. If I'm looking at a sex difference, I'll probably look for a small effect because they are small effects. Oh, okay. they, the amount of overlap is 85% typically between men and women when there are uh, the sort of the cognitive sex differences that exist, and there's not really many of them. There's a lot of overlap. And nothing is one of those large effects. Those, like the verbal difference between men and women, it's about 85% overlap. Same thing with the spatial difference between men and women, 85% overlap. Do you want more overlap? Well, it's going to be harder to find something if it's there. Yeah. Sorry. No, it's okay. I, I want you to ask questions. It's fine. I know, but I, I was trying to figure out by myself, and then I went. No, that's okay. That's okay. That's okay. So we want, we're being as realistic about how much overlap we're going to have. Like I said, if I'm looking at uh, sex differences in cognition, 
it's only realistic to say it's going to be a small effect because they are small effects. Right? Humans are pretty inbred and weird. You know, like, even, even looking at sex differences, it's very, there are very few huge sex differences. Cognitively. Uh, there's other, uh, like cognitive problem solving kind of things. There's other ones, but um, about mate choice, things like that. Again, those are small, they're real, but they're small effects. Like, literally, in, in Cohen's way of saying things, they would all be small effects. Okay, so we're going to combine. Any other questions before I move on? It's fine, I'm happy to answer. Okay. So we're going to combine that information with the Cohen overlap thing with the effect of sample size. And we're going to calculate something called, well, I'm going to calculate it. We're going to use something called the delta statistic. I know it looks like an 8 with something missing. It's a small Greek letter delta. Alpha, beta, gamma, uh, delta, eta, zeta. I forget how it goes the rest of it. Stuff, stuff I had to learn in grade 9 classics when we learned archaeology and a bit of Latin, a bit of Greek, hieroglyphics. It was cool. Part of the, on the final exam, you had to write your name in hieroglyphics. We did that in art class. That's cool. <laughs> right? And that was neat. I can't remember how to do it. I remember that the wavy water kind of one is, makes a m sound. That's where the shape of the M, the water letter M actually comes from, oh, cool. which is neat. Um, that's all I remember. I remember there's a bird. There's a lot of these guys. <laughs> you know, so it's that kind of thing. We had to remember the whole Greek alphabet. And I, I, to, even at the time, and I thought it was cool. I was really happy to learn it. I was like, I don't know why I have to memorize the Greek alphabet. I'm not really Greek. <laughs> and then there were like two Greek guys in the class. It wasn't fair because they already knew. It's like, it's like when my wife teaches people that take intro French, except that they're francophones. It's like, yeah. I'm teaching you the colors. <laughs> you already knew this. All right. So you got this to test what the hell does that mean? Oh, it's, not, it's not that hard. It's not that hard. Okay? Delta is D and how um, a statistic changes as a function of N. You'll see this in a second, what this means. Right now, I, I realize that just looks funny. But it's D times the way the statistic is affected by N, the way the thing we're interested in. Okay, we're interested in a t-test. What we're going to use this for the t-test right now. You can expand this to do it with an f-test. We talk with f, so that's fine. So d is the effect size. How, yeah, d is the effect size, exactly. The effect size, we choose in advance. Remember that. We're saying we're looking for a small, medium, or large, or something else. Maybe we're going to supersize it. I think you know. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Sometimes we find effects that are huge. They also like, why would you ever choose a, a, you know, a, a large or even bigger than the large effect? Well, it might be the case that you say, look, unless there's something really big here, we don't care, theoretically. That, that happens. Okay. Okay. So, F and N is how N is affected in a given test. So for a T test, F and N equals the square root of N. What? Well, okay, let me show you the formula. No problem. Let's think of a regular old t-test. Oh, look! 
there's n, and it's got a square root sign on it. So for a t, we're going to use the f and n thing, and so it's going to be d times the square root of n. I'm not sure. Um, so look, f and n, that's what this is, is how a statistic, the one we're going to use to make this calculation, is affected by n. So just take a look at the formula you're using and find out where n is. How does n affect this formula? Well, the square root of n affects it. So that's what we put in, that's what we sub in for f and n. That's all it is. It's a lot more, less complicated than that looks. It just it, there's really no other way to write it than that. Oh, Spence, go ahead. What if it was something like n minus 1? We'd still just use square root of n. Oh, the square root of n, uh, n minus 1. If oh. it was just n minus 1, we would just use n. Yeah, because the minus 1 isn't something that matters a whole great deal. Right. Yeah. So it would be square root n? Uh, that depends. Uh, in the formula, like if you look at this, like if you're thinking of something like for a t test where we have for a two group t test. You look at that, you go, know, those are those are just ends. Or maybe maybe you used to pull variance, right? N minus one times uh, N1, uh, sorry, times S squared 1 plus N minus 1 times S squared 2 all over N1 plus N2 over 2, minus 2. There you'd use N1 plus N2. You'd, but see, the thing is, you just call it N because all you're doing is getting the total number of subjects you need. Okay? That's a good question. In this case, you look at that and go, it's kind of misleading because you look at that and go, well, it just ends. Yeah, but they're under the square root sign. Right? So it's affected by the square root of N. Uh, it will be for a t-test. If it's for analysis of variance, it's just going to be by n. Because analysis of variance, we use variance, and it's a squared quantity, so we're dividing by n, not n minus 1. Or sorry, not squared n. I'm sorry. Okay. It's not that bad, this stuff. If you know d, and you don't really know d, you pick the value. You can figure out the sample size needed for a given power. So you're actually going to set the power now. You're going to set the D. There's a lot of what we like to call in, mo in modeling free parameters here. There's things that you're moving that you really don't have, that you can't really move in real life. But that's okay. We're just estimating things here. That's all we're doing. So you know D, let's say 0.5. And you know, you can, use, or you can figure out the sample size for a given power. So let's say we know that D is 0.5. Because that's, again, typically we're going to say, yeah, 67% overlap. A lot of things in sort of in psychology in general, a lot of sort of social science kind of things have that much overlap between them. That's, that's not uncommon. So let's go with 0.5. And it's a good start. It's in the middle, even though it's completely arbitrary. Uh, but it's in the middle. The problem, by the way, between the small, medium, and large thing is not that they're labeled that. It's that when people think it means something more than it does. When someone says, well, this is a large effect, because someone gave it that label. OK? 
Okay, there's a little controversy in some of the sort of behavioral science behavioral science people out there saying that we shouldn't use those labels. But I mean, they're they're just relative to each other. And in fact, Cohen, when he wrote that in the early '90s, knew that was happening. Like he said, I know that people are going to say something bad about this. Remember, they are small, medium, and large relative to each other, and that's all I mean. Okay, So don't overinterpret that. Anyway, we're going to go with 0.5. Let's say that that's the case, that we know it's 0.5. Usually that's what you do. Unless you have previous research that tells you something. A lot of times you go to a meta-analysis kind of paper. A meta-analysis will tell you the size of an effect. Those of you guys in my, in my memory class, um, when I talked about the paper, the, the, the Chalice and Broadback 92 paper, where we found the levels of processing effect in priming, it was a small size effect. They were always, a, maybe even smaller than small, but a point one. And I looked at 35 different articles and found the effect sizes for all of them. Not that hard to do. This minus this over that. I, I can do subtraction and division. And then I made a table put it in paper. Let's say we want a power of 0.8. That's reasonable. If we find something, if something something's there, we want to have an 80% chance of finding it. That sounds good, doesn't it? Why did I pick 0.8? Because it seems good. Why not 0.8? Yeah, let's go with 0.8. There's actually an appendix in your book called power. Appendix power! <laughs> Appendix has to have a use and perhaps it's good power. So, and actually then you just look up these values and you'll see this is actually, it's sort of asked backwards, so it's going to seem a little weird how this works. So, this is just using another table. So we're going to say D equals 0.5, 1 minus beta or power is 0.8, alpha is 0.05, because that's always going to be that, right? We're not curing cancer, and we're not doing, you know, we're not going to go to public health. We're trying to find out if there's a difference between these two groups of people playing a video game or something. Right? So there's somebody's honors thesis. So magic. There's the, there's the table. It's kind of hard to see, so I'm going to kill the lights for a second. No, wrong ones. Wrong ones. That one. That's better. Okay. Now this table, what we have here is we have power as a function of beta and significance level. So we got a significance level of 0.05, okay? And we got a, it's gonna tell us the delta. We got a 0.8, where is that? Just a second here. Oh, there it is. So 0.8, and I think the value, so 0.8's right here, I mean two point, our, our delta statistic number is 2.8. See that? So I just go, it was significance level of 0.05, we want a power of 0.8, we want a, then we need a delta of 2.8. That's how that table works. It's kind of weird how it works. Okay? So I just, the top row has significance level in it. We're almost always going to use the 0.05 one. Then we want to find the power we want. Let's say 0.8. I go down until I find 0.8, then I read across until I get to the delta value of 2.80. Now we're just going to fill this in. How did I get that? I, I, I did a thing with a cross multiplying. Nothing fancy. 
I can show you how I did it though if you want. Remember that D, or delta, I'm sorry. Write a delta again. Stop it. Equals um, D times F and N. Right? Okay. Delta, then, what we want to do is we want to isolate N. We want to isolate N. So that means delta equals D times the square root of N. Right? That means uh, delta divided by D equals the square root of N. Uh-oh. Square root number of subjects. Why don't we square the whole damn thing? There. Okay, that's all I did. I mean, I, I skipped a bunch of steps. I basically just isolated N, okay? All I did was isolate N. It's not magic. So I took 2.8 and divided it by 0.5, and I squared it. We need 31.36 people. Wow, that was easy. Conceptually, the stuff behind it is a nightmare, right? But doing the calculation is actually easy. We're going to take the delta value we pick out of a table, and we're going to divide by the effect size thing we're interested in, and we're going to square it for a t-test. And now we know we need 31.3632 people. <clears throat> wow, that's not bad. That's not bad at all, <clears throat> doing this. It's really a simple calculation. Let's say we want to increase the power. Let's say we want to make the power 0.99. We want all the power. <laughs> We're power hungry. <laughs> Gonna suck all the power out of everything and do things. There's that guy on the flash like that. So now the delta value from the table is 4.20. <laughs> 420. So. <laughs> yes. Yes, please. I'm just looking at, um, what is our, I know it's 0.5, but what is D? What is D? We just pick 0.5. Oh, Medium size effects. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I know it's weird because we're basically just picking shit. Like, all right, 0.5, all right, two points for table, square, I'm done. I know it's weird that it's that easy because conceptually this stuff's really, really weird to think about, right? Okay. Yes? So would the equation be different then if it wasn't, if it was just N, not yes. square even? Yeah. You just you will so you solve for n differently. Okay. So still so we want to do is isolate n. We wouldn't have to square it. That's all. Yeah. Now assuming I read that value from the table right, it's point. It's four point two. It's a hard reading tables hard with bad eyes. Now we need seventy and a half people. Seventy one people. Yeah. Wow. So to go up by, let's see, to go from point nine nine point. So a twenty percent increase in power. Right? 20 over 80. Yeah, 20% increase in power. So 25% increase in power. We more than double the amount of people. Doesn't seem like it's worth it, does it? Please. How do you know that it's going to be a t test or it's going to be a. Because, well, you know that because that's the way you've set up your experiment. Yeah. 
It works a little bit different for, differently for ANOVA. Uh, it, the thing is that it's conceptually exactly the same. And with a, <clears throat> excuse me, with an LSA variance, uh, and it, a really advanced statistics book, uh, not the one we have, but a, a more of a graduate level stats book, will have what are called power tables in it. And you'll just say how many groups, and how many, what size, uh, effect size you want, and what power you want, and then you read from these bizarre uh, graphs. And you, you, you can, uh, definitely per group, but it's conceptually the same thing. Um, or you can actually, there are online calculators for things. So you can actually just do them. It's not hard to do it. Like, so if you just Google uh, analysis of variance power calculator, you'll find like a little Java applet or something. It's probably an app in the App Store that'll do it for you. And then all you have to do is you put in how many groups you have, what kind of design you have, um, and a bunch of other things that you don't know about yet. And then it'll actually just spin out how many subjects per group you do. It's really pretty easy to do. But conceptually, it's exactly the same as what we're talking about here. Right? Except with ANOVA, we're comparing more than two distributions with each other. We're comparing K distributions to each other. So it gets a little more complicated. But conceptually, it's the same thing. You still, the delta statistic, it would be delta squared. So you'd use eta squared, which is a different thing. But it's, again, conceptually the same idea. So what the hell is delta? That's a good question, right? It's not just some crazy Greek letter. It's what's called the non-centrality parameter. Um, makes you sound like you know stuff when you say non-centrality Okay, normally we assume HO, don't we? We always start that way. And then we see if HO is unlikely, and then we reject HO. That's how it works. Under HO, the expected value of, of T is zero. Okay? If HO is true, the expected value of T is actually nothing, zero, nada. So how likely is it we'll find a value of T, sorry, find a value of delta that is greater than T at less than 0.05? All it is is it's basically a T calculation where it's non-zero. That's how. It, that's the math behind it. If you care, I sense most of you don't care. But that that I got asked what your what's delta, so I made this slide. The central T calc, uh, distribution is what we have. The expected value of T under under HO is zero. This is when HO when HO isn't true. What we get, okay. The big message to all this is it's really simple to do power calculations. The reasoning behind it is not, is not abundantly clear, right? Because it, it's hard to think backwards. And what we have to do when we talk about statistical power is literally think backwards. We have to think, we know how big the difference is. Now how can we find it? And the world doesn't work that way. And you have been trained for a very long time to say, I do science because I don't know something and I want to find out how it works. And now you have to do exactly the opposite. You have to say, I know this is how the world works, now how will I find it? That's what makes, conceptually, makes power very hard. Thinking about power. Right? But, so I mean, it's kind of, you got to, for, for a second, when you're thinking about physical power, you have to kind of throw out all your scientific training and say, 
I actually know how the world works. Now, how will I find it? How will I prove it? And that's not an easy thing for us to do because, you know, we've, we've beaten the idea of you know how the world works out of you. For a good reason. Not really beaten. We don't hit people. Just intellectually. Okay. So the point is, these are not hard to do, and you can save yourself so much time. If you do an experiment and you decide, like I said, every year my honor, at least one of my honor students wants these 120 subjects. And the first thing I say to them is, first of all, it is impractical. There are only 130 people taking the intro suck. How are we going to get all of them? That's question one. Question two is, why do you need that many? I literally thought that they just kind of chose, like, I didn't realize that there was no, you, background. No. Oh, yeah, because you waste, you're wasting time and money. Like, think about this. 25% increase in power from point eight to point, well, almost 25%, to point nine nine. right? And we double the number of people we need. It's like the law of diminishing marginal returns in, in, in uh, economics. You know, at some point, it doesn't make any more. That didn't help. That uh, it, it, at some point, doing something extra doesn't help. That's what the law of diminishing marginal returns. Is. So, doing something extra is good for a while, but at some point, you know, icing's good on cake, but eventually, if you put more icing on it, it's not helping at all. Right? It's like, well, now I got more icing. So? Right? Or when you go, it's like you go to an all you eat buffet. Right? Eventually, at some point, you go, well, I can eat more because I'm going to get more for my money, but I'm getting less and less for this. <laughs> right? It's that kind of thinking. So if you think of it that way, we have to be economical. And it's also your time. Literally, running 30 people is a testing 30 people takes a lot of time. Let's say you're doing, let's say and some of the honors experiments take an hour, for example. And some of the experiments that, uh, human experimentation that I've done, uh, yeah, they'll, they'll, it's an hour per person. If I, if I have to schedule, one of the things we talked about in memory class, that experiment four of, my, of that thing I did with Brad Chalice, I had 20 subjects in that experiment. That was 20 hours of my life, plus half an hour after and before, so 15 minutes all told, right? So we got an hour and a half. That's 30 hours of my life within a week. I was also running animals at the same time. Graduate school's busy. So, I mean, why run more than 20? I'm going to find the effect if it's there. So, yeah, I mean, not everybody does these things. But the quick and dirty way to do it is look at other experiments, look at other papers, and say, how, did, how many subjects do they need when they find something? The other way to do it is, 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 is do something like this, or as I said, look it up in a book or something, and you'll be fine. Other questions or comments? Jay, go ahead. So the definition of power is the power of the subject to exercise power. The probability of rejecting a false null hypothesis. That's probably the most straightforward. Or probability of rejecting HO given HA is true if you want to write that all mathematically. Other questions? We have time. I mean, we, we don't worry. Cast. For the power, you said you like, picked point 0.8, so that's like 
80% chance of finding a significant effect if, the, if, if HO was actually false. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. This, like I said, this is conceptually weird. I understand that. The course gets harder, just not conceptually weirder. This was the, the, the point. This is the, the pinnacle of the, of the conceptually odd part of this course. The rest of it is all just about explaining variance. It actually gets really easy. It gets repetitive. Other questions? Now remember, you have a test coming up. We're going to do a review class on Tuesday, and then test on Thursday. All right? Thanks, guys.
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.